Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Diva podcast. I'm your host, Monica Reinagel, and today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Taylor Wallace about his plan for improving nutrition research and policy. Taylor is an adjunct professor in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at George Mason University and also CEO at the Think Healthy Group, Inc., and his research and his work focuses on how we can use diet as a tool to prevent chronic disease. Welcome to the podcast, Taylor. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm so glad you had time to talk with us because you recently published an opinion piece in USA Today calling for the establishment of a national institute of nutrition. And you argue that nutrition research is grossly underfunded by the federal government and that this has a cascade of negative effects. Right. You know, we've been having debates back and forth of whether taxpayer dollars should be used to develop new drugs and new treatments that are, you know, kind of handed off to pharmaceutical industries. Uh, But really, the big issue is we're putting all this money into treatment and not investing at all in prevention. And, you know, somewhere around three to 5% of the entire NIH budget is actually allocated to nutrition and prevention research. That's a really tiny percentage. Yeah, it's actually quite egregious when you look at the large picture. You know, you see about two thirds of adults are either overweight or obese. And really, people think things like obesity are just really simple. If I, you know, don't eat too many calories and I exercise, I'll lose weight. But that's not necessarily completely true, especially in the day and age where we now have a population where overweight individuals have had children. There's a lot of predispositions to some of these metabolic disorders, and it's not any longer just a calorie in, calorie out thing. We haven't thought about it like that uh, for quite some time, but we really need good research to help inform not only our policies, uh, but you know, to inform how we counsel patients. Because I'll tell you, I was a fat kid and I can look at your cheeseburger and gain weight. And I know many <laughs> other people are just like me. So how does this underfunding of research play out in terms of our nutrition recommendations that come out of the federal government? Our dietary guidelines, which you know are our cornerstone of nutrition policy in the U.S., every five years, a committee of about 15 to 20 experts come together. They do a lot of systematic reviews uh, to, of the current evidence uh, to really establish 
what our dietary intake recommendations are. And those, you know, haven't really changed a lot over the last like 30 or so years since the dietary guidelines first started in the early 80s. Um, and that's because every guideline committee leaves behind key questions uh, that the committee didn't feel like they had the evidence to answer. And those questions, there's no research dollars that are that's ever put behind answering those questions. So each time the guidelines committee meets, we kind of, if you think about it, I've been doing this for, you know, 10, 15 years. And each cycle of the dietary guidelines, we talk about the same things, added sugars, saturated fat, things like that, which we do have some pretty solid evidence on. But now we have evidence, for instance, that flavonoids, these dietary bioactive compounds, uh, could have a very large impact on uh, something like cardiovascular disease. The same with lutein and zeaxanthin. We know that they build up in the macular region of the eye um, and that they can have a very uh, significant preventative effect on age-related macular degeneration. However, there's just not that solid, large clinical study research to ever push that field forward. It's a big problem in nutrition, and it's one of the reasons that the field suffers from um, you know, a lot of observational data because there's just not funding for the large clinical trials that we need to inform some of these policy um, decisions we make. Yes, there has been a lot of discussion recently about nutrition research and, you know, how sort of soft the ground on which we are building our recommendations are that it is by and large observational studies, correlations. So in many of the biggest studies, so those are the ones that we feel like are the most robust, looking at the connection between what people eat and then what happens with their health over time, they are based entirely on people's notoriously imperfect ability to remember or or estimate exactly what and how much they ate over the last 24 hours, or in some cases over the last six months or a year. Can we really form good recommendations on that kind of research? Well, and I I think that depends on what question you're asking. Um, For instance, uh, our uh, folic acid fortification policies Uh, We're all built around observational research where we showed that women uh, who were pregnant uh, that had very low intakes of folate and folic acid were much more predisposed to their infant having a neural tube defect or what we know as spina bifida. So I think in cases like that, um, you know, observational research has really provided some really valuable information and you know, a lot of the time in nutrition, we suffer from, you know, we can't ethically deprive a woman of folic acid to see if her baby has a neural tube defect. It's just not ethical. Uh, And so therefore, we have to have other ways of looking at nutrients, particularly in times of deficiency uh, and excess. The issue with epidemiology is it's often done by epidemiologists that don't have a nutrition background. So, you know, it's really important that you accompany that epidemiology background uh, with someone or a group of people who have a background in nutritional biochemistry and molecular biology, because I think a, a lot of the times where these large cohort studies are deficient, they really just don't correct for the right things. Uh, because they they don't have a background in 
the biology behind what a nutrient actually does uh, once it's consumed. So I would say that, yes, nutrition epidemiology is often confounded. I would also say there's also some really rock star uh, nutrition epidemiological studies out there. And, you know, for a, from a policy standpoint, I think we can really pair those well um, with smaller randomized control trials, right? Nobody's going to pay $20 million, even if we did have the government funds, for a, you know, 20,000 person, 20 year randomized control trial for every nutrition topic. So I think looking at smaller studies, those randomized control trials of 50 people that look at things like cholesterol levels and changes in blood pressure. I think you can pair that very nicely with some of the larger cohort studies that look at, you know, heart disease outcomes such as heart attack or cardiovascular death. And one study often makes the headlines, but Mm -hmm. it's really not about that one study. It's about the totality of evidence and all the different types of evidence that we synthesize together to come to a policy recommendation. It certainly is both an art and a science, and uh, and because of the complexity, it leaves open the possibility that people can mine the data and the studies and interpret it to really support any conclusion that they uh, that they start out with. Right, and you know, my um, mentor uh, when I first started um, at Ilse North America was my first job. And he used to tell me all the time that if you torture the statistics enough, Mm -hmm. it will eventually give you what you want from it. (laughs) That's right. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. So you mentioned the dietary guidelines for Americans, this process that we go through uh, every five years to update, uh, ideally, our um, policy guidelines that affect things like our school lunch programs and our SNAP ed, but also the recommendations that are given to ordinary Americans. Here's what should be on your plate. used to be a pyramid. Now it's a plate. We go through that process every five years. But a lot of people, including me, actually, have have argued that having the USDA oversee this process sort of introduces 
a conflict of interest. I mean, the, the USDA stands for the United States Department of Agriculture. And part of their mission is to promote American agriculture. And arguably, this may have resulted in dietary guidelines over the decades that have overemphasized things that we just happen to grow a lot of in this country, like wheat and dairy. You know, is it time to move that process out of the USDA, perhaps into this new institution that you're proposing, the National Institute of Nutrition? Well, that's a good thought. And, you know, I'd actually never thought about the dietary guidelines uh, moving over to NIH. Um, That probably wouldn't occur because NIH is strictly not a policy-focused organization. It's a research-focused institution. So if it were to move, I think probably uh, the Department of Health and Human Services uh, would would completely take it over. Now, there's arguments for and against that. And yeah, like you said, um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, by congressional mandate, uh, cannot disparage any American commodity. So, you know, I think USDA very much has to tread very lightly, particularly when they translate Um, the report of the advisory committee into the dietary guidelines, which is the policy document, um, because they have to be very cognizant of that. Uh, At at the same time, you know, I think USDA um, is is very special. They're uh, in so many ways a a little gem. They have a a great staff within the uh, Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion uh, that uh, publishes the dietary guidelines uh, they have a, a great uh, evidence analysis library that they've built to um, really rigorously look at topics uh, based on uh, the most uh, uh, rigorous evidence to date. And, um, you know, I, I think that in some aspects, interaction with the industry uh, has been beneficial uh, because when you create policy around the industry, you're not as effective, right? And a lot of people disagree with this, but I see industry as part of the answer, right? If I can uh, get a Coke into uh, rural southwestern Kentucky, where I'm from, in any food desert in the United States, then that company has the ability to, uh, and they know supply chains well enough to get fruits and vegetables in there. And so I see them as, as part of the, the solution. And I'll go back to the whole example of folic acid fortification, which I don't think would have been as successful if it had uh, came out of uh, the Department of Health and Human Services versus USDA that works very closely with the industries uh, that have the ability to really shift consumption on a, a national and even international level. Sure, by implementing the very widespread universal fortification policies, right. practices that uh, that largely eliminated those neural tube defects uh, in the Western world. Right. You're right, that is one of the big success stories that we can point to. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at, you know, most of our fortification, you know, it's come around because of those collaborations that, that governments had with the industry. And, you know, as we move to kind of this more, you know, hands-off anti-industry kind of uh, rhetoric that you see, uh, particularly in in the political um, 
space right now. It really worries me because I really think if you want to change the food supply, if you want to change how consumers eat, you really have to start with the food companies and incentivize them. I mean, look at Philadelphia and the soda tax. I mean, that now we're, what, a couple years out from the Philadelphia soda tax, and they've showed completely no effect of that soda tax. But, you know, that's a very, you know, Band-Aid solution to a, a much larger issue in my mind. Uh, and so I, I kind of feel like that's been the opposite approach that we need to work with these um, manufacturers that create sugar-sweetened beverages to, you know, have healthier options to, to create line extensions and to create products that um, they can get into these markets that still taste good, that people can uh, enjoy, you know, but not necessarily disparage them to where, you know, they're just going to say, okay, well, we're just going to go sell it at Costco two miles down the road. Yes, it certainly is a, a matter of creating incentives or aligning the incentives that right. motivate businesses who are in business to make money with, uh, with our national health interests. So we've been talking a little bit about how we might be able to promote or prioritize more and better nutrition research to, uh, to shift some of our energy into prevention and not only in treatment, shift some of those research dollars. Uh, and you have proposed that we, what we need is a National Institute of Nutrition. Now, we already have a National Institute of Health. Would creating another bureaucracy end up with you know, us being able to spend more dollars on this? Or does it just add another layer of cost? Well, you know, obviously, there's a cost associated with um, creating a new institute. However, if you look at it from a long-term perspective, I think of this as a healthcare cost savings thing. When I was chief scientist at the National Osteoporosis Foundation, uh, we showed very clearly that if you were sufficient in calcium and vitamin D, that you had about a 35% reduced risk of hip fractures uh, when, as you age. And so think about that. You know, osteoporosis is one of the 10 biggest costs to our healthcare system. Uh, and, you know, when you have a hip fracture, the average cost is about $80,000. Most of that goes to Medicare. Uh, and, you know, then there's the, you know, rehabilitation afterwards. And oh, by the way, a quarter of people that have a hip fracture don't live another uh, 12 months. So when you think about it from an overall healthcare cost savings thing, that little investment uh, in a National Institute for Nutrition could have some extremely large um, healthcare cost savings in, in the future. And then this um, funding of of more research and you know prioritizing that then then would have to then be funneled into the policy making process that's happening over at the evidence analysis library the dietary guidelines advisory committee and all of that and that's i guess where you're referencing better coordination between these different silos right it just seems like you know when our federal government is is putting out a national nutrition policy document. And these scientists are saying, okay, here are the research gaps. We, can't, we don't have the evidence to answer these questions. It seems like right then that the National Institutes of Health should open up a call for proposals to begin mm -hmm. answering those questions so that 
you know, five years down the line, they can make solid policy recommendations off of that new evidence. But we've got um, these questions. I mean, if you go back to any of the dietary guidelines advisory committees since the 1980s, when it uh, was first initiated, I, I mean, you can see questions that are still unanswered because there's just been a lack of funding for some of these questions. You know, I, I've seen you write, and, and I've also made the point that you know, we shouldn't malign industry-funded research because without industry-funded research, <laughs> we'd be even worse shape because industry does fund a lot of important and expensive nutrition research. Is there a way to uh, bring them into this conversation? You were talking before about let's work together, let's align the incentives. And when we have these unanswered questions, how can we interest our industry-funded researchers into looking into some of that? Well, I think industry-funded research is so critical. And without those huge research dollars, younger researchers like myself basically have no chance at getting an NIH grant because, you know, there are the the big wigs in our field that have had the, you know, five, $10 million um, NIH grants, and they're the ones that pretty much gobble up every little thing that NIH has. And so, you know, it really puts younger investigators in a hard position because they have to choose not doing research or doing research that's industry funded. And I, I think a lot of people, you know, don't realize that industry's funded a lot of really great research. I mean, I go back to uh, PepsiCo, Quaker Oats, and General Mills that put in so much money in the 1990s and early 2000s into looking at the effects of dietary fiber. And now we know that uh, dietary fiber has a, a very large effect on, on prevention of cardiovascular diseases, that it has a lipid-lowering effect, um, that it influences the microbiome, uh, and can really offer some very long-term uh, benefits You know, if you have high consumption of certain whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. And that is known solely because of the investment uh, from PepsiCo and General Mills. And there's been a lot of really good research that, that's informed, uh, you know, not only the policies we make, uh, but the guidance we give consumers. And again, uh, folic acid fortification being one of those uh, that industry invested in and solved a public health problem. Industry-funded research will always be to a certain extent self-serving because they're trying to find results that you know support what their product is or their industry is but all researchers have bias um, the the thing about industry research is that it's a little bit more apparent what the potential bias might be and i think it makes it a little bit easier for reviewers to police that and be sure that the study designs are solid and that the results are being interpreted appropriately to make sure that that bias isn't twisting the results in any way. And, you know, when, when your biases are merely ideological and not, and not as obvious, you know, they, they're almost more treacherous because they're right. invisible not only to the reviewers, perhaps, but often to the researchers themselves. Right. And, you know, I'm just writing about this today as we speak because we all eat and we all have thoughts about food and food affects all of us. And so, therefore, we're all extremely biased. I mean, if you talk about cultural norms or preferences, that all plays into how we research nutrition. You know, actually, in working with journals, um, you know, because I think journals are equally as biased. They, they, you know, sell ads and put out press releases and 
you know, a lot of times those press releases have very sensational headlines so that they get pick up and, you know, can sell more, uh, you know, things online for themselves. Uh, but I've had an issue with them, you know, not policing the non-industry funded studies as much as they would an industry funded study. And I don't find that um, to be right either. I think there needs to be a certain standard that we all uh, accept that studies are going to have. And if they don't, then we're not going to accept them, whether they have a sexy headline or whether they're industry funded or not. That's right. And, you know, transparency goes a long way toward uh, helping people feel more confident in what they're accessing. Well, it's it's such an interesting conversation, and we'll see where your call for a nutrition institute takes us uh, and, and where we find ourselves as we're gearing up for yet another cycle of the dietary guidelines. Are you sitting on the committee this time? I am not sitting on the committee this time. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're off the hook for that one. One day. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me, Taylor. It's been a really interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on the show. You can find Taylor on Instagram and Twitter. He's at Dr. Taylor Wallace, and we'll have links in the show notes to Taylor's websites and his social media channels, along with his article in USA Today. You'll find those along with the entire Nutrition Diva archives at quickanddirtytips.com, where you can also sign up for weekly updates so you never have to worry about missing an episode. I'm Monica Reinagel, and in addition to my work here on the Nutrition Diva podcast, I also help people reach their health and nutrition goals. You can learn more about my programs at nutritionovereasy.com. Our show is produced by Nathan Sems, edited by Karen Hertzberg. Our team at Quick and Dirty Tips also includes Morgan Ratner, Emily Miller, Kate Hines, Michelle Margulis, and our director, Kathy Doyle. Thanks for listening, and remember to eat something good for me. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of seventh generation. Find seventh generation laundry detergent in fresh lavender and other scents at seventhgeneration.com. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.